Passion to Poison, the podcast that explores life's transitions. I'm Russ Tanner, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac Wilson. Today on the podcast, we have the privilege of talking to Saba Kidwai. Saba is an education speaker, researcher, and consultant. She earned her doctorate in global executive education from USC and her bachelor's and master's degrees in social science and education from UC Irvine. She's worked as an innovative learning specialist at Fairmont Private Schools in Orange County, the director of innovative learning at USC, and most recently an education leadership executive at Apple. Although she's been successful in many areas of her life, both academically and professionally, she's gone through several life-changing transitions that challenged her beliefs about life, work, and family. We're excited to learn from her. Saba, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad you're here and we're really interested in your story. You've you've gone through some pretty big transitions in your life and uh, we haven't had anyone on the podcast yet that's been in the education field directly. So that's that's going to be a, a new world for us to explore. So why don't you take us back to maybe not the beginning, but tell us a little bit about your childhood and uh, how that influenced the decisions you made. Absolutely. All right. So we'll start with, so I was born in London and I'm South Asian and so are my parents and I have three younger siblings. And I think that, you know, it's very common with a lot of South Asian families and people from that sort of part of the world, maybe everywhere, I don't know. Um, You know, there's a lot of cultural elements that um, go into your, like how you're brought up from like the types of, you know, friends that you have to like different customs and different traditions. So we grew up in London and I moved to California when I was 10 years old. And one of the primary reasons for that was when we were growing up in London, we didn't have a lot of other people who were from our cultural background. And you wouldn't believe it now, given the diversity in um, the UK. But back when we were there, you know, a long time ago, there was not a lot of diversity at all. And so one of the things that my parents wanted was for us to be exposed to more cultures, um, especially more like South Asian like people and things like that. And so he had visited a community here in Orange County, California. And it was like a a religious center, a cultural center, and it was also a school. And I would say that was probably the first major life transition that I experienced that I feel really impacts and influences the work that I do today in education. Because I remember growing up in London, just being so happy in school. And so many people will ask me, well, like, why were you so happy? Like, why was it different? And I was so young, I can't really remember specifics, but I remember I loved school and I loved learning. And when we came to California, the school we went to, it was a religious school. And given the background I shared, we didn't really grow up with a lot of religion. We didn't grow up with a lot of culture. So it was like this intense culture shock from like just the things we had to wear and all that type of, this is the things we weren't used to doing at 10 years old. And so school became this really, really, really miserable experience. The way they teach here is also really different than how they teach in London. And I just remember things here like just being boring. And I had just really, really, really lost my interest and love for learning and school. And it wasn't until, and I was a relatively good student, but it wasn't until 
I was 16 that I took the high school exit exam that I then went to community college and that's when I fell back in love with learning and that is sort of like what then was the catalyst really for me getting to kind of where I am today. So what was it about the education here that wasn't exciting you? It was very textbook driven. I don't remember us doing a lot of textbook work in London, but I remember like here, it was like we were just sitting at a desk all day long. And I feel like in London, there was a lot more variety, even just the way extracurriculars are integrated into your school day. Whereas here, everything is sort of like after school or you have like sports after school and, you know, other types of classes after school. In London, I remember it was very integrated from swimming classes year round to music, to arts, to dance, all these to theater. It was just a lot of variety, I would say. And I also remember creating a lot. I remember I used to write like a lot of stories. And I just, like I said, I was so little, I don't really remember the specifics, but I just remember here being really frustrated by textbooks. And I remember one example in particular was the difference in how, that there's a big difference in how they teach long division in fourth and fifth grade in America versus London. And I'm like, the London way is like much more simple. And here it was like this long process. And I remember having this like argument with my teacher where I was like, that's not the right way to do it. You can do it this way. And they were like, no, you can't. You have to do it this way. And so I feel like there was just a lot of it just felt very restrictive in a lot of ways. Do you feel like that it's it's the same way now? Have things changed at all and from from your experience in education? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more intentionality around why learning needs to be more interactive, the benefits of it. But then I guess we could also say that that ideology has been around since the beginnings of industrialization with like John Dewey advocating for a more, you know, experiential type of learning environment. I think just the resources and tools we have now have just amplified it. I I think what I've come to realize, even reflecting back on my learning, seeing, you know, people around me and seeing the different schools that I visit is that it's just really hit or miss. You know, if you have a great teacher, it just, it changes your life. Um, but you, that can really change from year to year to year. So that lack of consistency consistency isn't really there. Whereas in London, I don't really remember loving school one year and then hating it another year. And obviously this is just like my like perspective, like my, I'm sure people have different experiences, but I just very vividly remember how much I disliked learning up until I got to community college. Because when I got to community college, the ability to craft your own schedule. Like I used to spend hours just going through like the course catalog, looking through all the different things, but just that ability to choose your courses, the ability to craft your own schedule and just the ability, I think just to have that choice back um, was really, really, really significant for me. Do you have siblings? I do. I have three younger siblings. Okay. So were their experiences the same as yours? Would you say they they had the same journey or was it different for them? 
Yeah, I would say we all experienced it differently. So we're four sisters. So I was 10 when we moved, and my second sister was seven. So she was going into second grade. And then the younger two, like one was two years old and the other was one. So I feel like they grew up here a lot more in terms of like they didn't really have like the two different um, sort of experiences to compare to. But yeah, absolutely. I would say me and my second sister definitely struggled the most in making the transition. And I think I wonder sometimes like how much of that was attributed to like the culture shock that we were experiencing alongside. Um, Like I said, you know, we just did not grow up with that type of like we just didn't like we had religion, but it was more like on the weekends and things like that. Um, But I think to have gone from that to this fully immersive community and school and everything. Um, it was probably a lot at that age. Did, did your parents understand what you were going through? Do you think, did they realize that you kind of had this disconnect or you weren't as engaged as, as you were in London? Yeah. I mean, I I think they definitely did. I feel like one of the great things I think about our dad, this was a big difference between our mom and our dad. So our mom was very much about the letter grades and, you know, oh, if you got like a, you know, if you got a bad grade and you had to go home and sign it, like you'd be scared to take it to her. So like, we'd always want to go show my dad because our dad never really cared so much about the technicalities of school. He cared and emphasized learning. So when I made that decision to, you know, take that exit exam, he was fully supportive of it because I had like a learning plan. Um, But whereas I would say he definitely brought in a lot of extracurriculars for us, even at home. Like I feel like growing up, having a computer wasn't something that everybody had access to. Um, We had the internet like before a lot of my friends did. So I feel like those types of experiences became my outlet. I had a lot of robotics, a lot of coding, Lego, that type of thing, video games, which I feel like now if you said would be really different, but I actually attribute video games a lot to like my problem solving skills. But the games when I was growing up were so different than the ones today. So maybe a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, I think they were aware and I think they did their best. But like I said, for them, it was such a priority that we'd be exposed to like religion and culture that it probably trumped like, you know, it was more of one of those like, oh, but you'll be grateful for it later on type things. You had talked about two major transitions in your life. And and that, that was before we, we got on the podcast, you were talking to us. Uh, your parents got divorced. And I, I would say for anyone that's that can that's traumatic and definitely life-changing. And you also talked about uh, the recession that we had in 2007 as being huge transition points for you. So maybe, maybe go into those, uh, talk about you know, what happened with the divorce and how you and your sisters dealt with that uh, for better or worse, and then maybe kind of transition into how the recession changed you. Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting the way in which those events coincided because it's one time, it's one thing sometimes, you know, like usually when you go through these things, you don't get hit on every single angle, like professional, personal, or sometimes you do, but it's definitely, I don't think like the norm, right? Usually they happen in different phases. This sort of like really coincided with like about a year and a half apart of each other. One of the things that I found that I think often about, and it's still something like you process and you still try to think through is It's so ironic that the very community that we moved here for and that we were a part of 
ended up becoming such a big part of the problem during the divorce. So, and it's one of those things that just opens your eyes to the nature of people, to the nature, I think, of just being more self-aware about the importance of who you surround yourself with and how sometimes cultural and societal values and norms may like are worth looking into and exploring instead of just blindly following. Um, because I remember like growing up, like, you know, this community was like the be all and end all. It was such an integrated part of our lives from like where we spent our weekends to who our friends were to, you know, who our parents' friends were. Like it was just so integrated. Yet I remember when my parents got divorced, it was like up until that point, it was like, you know, you're the perfect family, you're the perfect everything, even though behind closed doors, nobody's perfect. Everybody has different things going on. But there's this facade that I think a lot of times people feel like they have to put on um, for others in, you know, so that they have that reputation or they have all these things. And I remember just how much just seeing people's response. So it was a very, very, very bitter divorce. I won't go into the details, but it lasted about seven years. It was incredibly bitter. And I think what made it traumatic was the, like it was, it was very malicious as our mother was like, kind of like the main instigator, but it was very, very, very malicious. It was, you know, a lot of taking things away. It was a lot of like sorry stories out in the community which then triggered a lot of people coming to us and saying, why are you doing this? And why are you treating your mother this way? And, you know, like, you're going to go to hell if you don't talk to your mother and all these like crazy things that people would say. And I remember just being really fascinated by the fact that very few people would ever pause to ask why or want to dig deeper. Like that immediate rush to judgment was fascinating to me. And I had never really had that experience with these people before. It had been like parties and, you know, holiday gatherings and things like that. So this was probably my first experience where, you know, it wasn't a party and it wasn't a social gathering and there was an issue. And to see the same people who you consider your friends, religious leaders that you look up to react in such a judgmental way really, really, really made me pause and just think, wow, like what what kinds of people are we really around and why are we around these types of people? Because it really is when you go through bad times that you recognize who those true friends are that, you know, that you want to make sure that you keep ties with and that are going to be there for you in both good and bad. It's always easy to be there in the good times, but in the bad times, those people who support you and who truly, I think, empathize or are able to empathize are the ones that I think are worth like, you know, keeping around. And I remember in the beginning, I used to be like, wow, why are people so stupid? Like we're four girls and nobody ever even asks us why. That was really shocking to me that nobody asked why that initial rush to judgment versus the asking of why. And so it really wasn't until a year and a half later, you know, the recession happened and I had graduated as a new teacher and it was like a series of layoff notices. But when I got to, I mean, I made the switch from public to private in 2012, I joined Fairmont and that was really what completely opened my eyes to just the possibilities in my profession. But to tie it back to the other story, it's really where I began learning about design thinking. And because I was learning about that in my professional field, and if you're not familiar with design thinking, it's a framework for like solving problems and exploring opportunities. But the entire premise of design thinking is that while you think you may have the solution or while you think you may know the answer, it's important to take a step back and empathize. Ask, 
are you asking the right questions? Are you solving the right problem? And so it just really occurred to me that, wow, it's not that people are stupid. It's that we really, really sometimes as a society lack empathy and we're so quick to rush to judgment, to rush to an answer. Because if you think about it, that's also how we're trained in school, right? We don't think to always examine things from multiple perspectives. Um, It's definitely not how we teach history all the time. And so it's I, it's not our frame of mind. We jump to answers. We jump to solutions instead of going through that discovery and that empathy phase. So the coinciding of the two really, really, really just sort of challenged everything I had been taught personally growing up, professionally, like, you know, academically in school. But it was incredible because it also really allowed me to lean into, well, what are my values? What do what matters to me? What's important to me? What is my like sort of criteria for the types of people that I'm going to allow into my life as friends and whatnot? And it allowed me to start thinking about those things, which quite honestly, I had never even really reflected on before. Like I just didn't have that level of self-awareness that had started to unfold as I was going through these events. It's interesting to see how people do rush rush to judgments these days. I feel like that's, it's been escalating. You'll you'll hear something in the news, good or bad or whatever, and people just immediately assume oftentimes the worst. And I think that kind of goes along with what you're talking about here, whether it's, you know, asking you and your sisters the why questions and kind of probing a little bit, or maybe it's, you know, whatever the news story is that you heard, instead of rushing to judgment, I think it would be helpful, like you're saying, if people would step back for a second, have some empathy and just say, well, what's really going on here? And I totally agree. I think the whys and just asking questions um, is something that just for whatever reason, it's just kind of this human thing just gets left out more often than not. And I think it would help a lot if people would do that. Yeah, I think it's one of the, you know, I think I always say that we don't dig in enough to the value of the words that we often share in education. We don't dig in enough to why curiosity is such an important skill to teach. And then we don't dig in enough to say, okay, how does this play out in different subject areas? How do we constantly cultivate curiosity, creativity, communication, collaboration, all of these words that are so important, but have almost sometimes lost their value because then people see them as buzzwords. But I think what really happens is is when you grow up and you don't get exposed constantly, you're not trained to be curious. It's hard then to not make those judgments because you've just been trained that way to just jump to solutions, jump to answers, um, and not have the skill set to discern things from one another. Um, I remember one of the things I used to love about teaching the social sciences. I would always open on the first day with this quote. Oh my God, I'm going to forget who it's from. Thomas Jefferson or one of the founders. And it's he says, I detest what you say. And we really break down the word detest. He didn't just say, I don't like, um, you know, I don't agree. I detest, which is such a strong form of hate, yet I will defend to death your right to say it. And that was really the foundation of the culture I wanted to create in my classroom because it was so important for that to be a safe space where students could experiment with their ideas, with their thinking, being able to share different perspectives without feeling as if they were going to be punished. And so, 
I think when schools lose that freedom of academic, like you lose that academic freedom of thought and you don't cultivate that, not just in one class, but over a period of years, it I think is challenging then as an adult, which is why it's so interesting to do design thinking workshops. In the beginning, people will, it feels so foreign, the idea that we're not just coming to the solution, that we're not just starting with the answer, that you have to undo the answer and take it out and you've got to kind of go back and start that investigative process. And it's such an uncomfortable experience um, for all of us. And it's hard for us to retrain our brains in that way. But I think to your point, it's such an important thing to do because without that, it's hard to have conversations that are complex and it's hard to have them in a civilized way. So I'm curious in looking at your um, looking at your academic work, what made you decide on uh, the courses that you studied? Um, was it specific teachers that inspired you to go in a certain direction and then um, I, I mean, congratulations on getting uh, getting your doctorate and or bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. That's uh, amazing accomplishment. But walk us through a little bit of the decisions that that went into what you studied. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first joined community college, I took anything and everything. I took 175 units in two years. And you only are supposed to take 120. So that is how like desperate I was, I guess, to learn again. So I took everything from theater arts to sewing to graphic design to web design, obviously all the math, English, history, all the ones you have to take. But about a year in, I got a letter saying that I had been accepted to the dean's honor list for social science. And I was like, I didn't apply for this. Like, what's like, I just didn't really connect the dots. And I went to the office and I asked them like, hey, I got this letter. Like, what does it mean? And they're like, oh, you've taken a lot of social science classes and you've earned like a certain GPA in that subsection. And I was like, oh, OK. So I realized I clearly have a passion for the social sciences. And then I got my first job at the community college with a program called EOPS. And EOPS basically was a service. Um, it was like the office for, um, it wasn't financial aid. It was to support like low-income students. And basically in this role, I was assigned to local high schools and I would go visit the high schools once a week um, and the students would sign up in their career center and I would basically, you know, kind of walk them through options. Um, a lot of them didn't know, like a lot of them were undocumented and a lot of them just like, you know, or thought that they didn't have, they have the money or the resources to attend college. And so I would kind of walk them through if they were interested in going to college, knowing what their options were. And at the same time, I was also taking a class where I was interning in an elementary school classroom. And I thought I would enjoy working with elementary school kids. I played with the idea of being a teacher, but I had favorites. Um, and so I was like, this probably isn't going to work out for me. But I really, really, really loved watching the kids' faces as I was telling them about different options for what they could do. And I fell in love with that experience. And so... I think a couple months later, I was like trying to decide what major to pick, where I was going to transfer. And it was like the college day where all the different colleges have their stalls. And UCI was there. And I didn't want to move out of country or out of the state or anything like that. I wanted something local. And UCI was there and they had a table for social science. And I was like, oh, I just got nominated for that. I'm going to go over there. And 
I'm really anti-testing. Like I am not a good test taker at all. And so I also wanted something where I didn't have to take any sort of like standardized tests. And so UCI social science program had a program where you could become a teacher and instead of taking the test, you had to submit a portfolio. So it was a lot more work, obviously, like after each class, you had to like do this whole thing. And then at the end of your two years, you would submit it. And if it got approved, then it would waive the testing requirement. Um, UCI also had an integrated credential and master's. So I was like, oh, that's great. I can go there for undergrad and then I'll apply to their master's and credential program. And it was a, it, the undergrad obviously was two years, but their master's and credential was an intense one year. So it was like, wow, you can finish all that and then I'll get like started and I'll have a job and I'll start making money and all that stuff. And then of course you knew the recession was going to come, but that's sort of what led to me getting involved as a high school social science teacher. And then like I shared earlier, once the recession happened, it just challenged a lot of my sort of like ideas about the world of work and how I was going to kind of, you know, survive within it and the things that I needed to do to be successful. I stumbled across design thinking and then really just went down a rabbit hole. I heard a talk in 2014 from Eric Brynjolfsson. Um, it, and he he does a TED Talk, but he's also co-authored a book called The Second Machine Age. But he had a line that just really inspired the work that came more recently with the dissertation and the research. And that was that technology is not destiny. We shape our destiny. And at that time, I was doing a lot of work with schools on integrating technology. And it just, you know, we always started with the tech. Learn these apps. Here's these tools. And design thinking really challenges that and says, you know, don't start with the tools, don't start with the tech, don't start with the product, start with the people. And so when I heard Eric's line, it's like, okay, well, how do we shape our destiny? You know, like, what is the answer to that? And how do you do that at a young age? And that's really what inspired the research um, that I did at Design 39, which is, you know, what led to, you know, which is what I did as part of my doctorate degree, um, because they truly are a school that I think give kids the skills and mindsets. They're, they're an example. It's not the only approach, but they are definitely one example where there's a lot to learn from in terms of how you can help kids shape their destiny. So tell us a little bit about how you personally make decisions. And let me give you a little context first. Some people make decisions, something comes into their head and they just act on it. Uh, some people feel something. Some people experience both and maybe it takes them five years to actually act on whatever it is that they're doing. How, how do you personally make decisions? At what point? Is it a feeling? Is it a thought? How, how do you do that? So I'll tell you two things. I'll tell you first, I have a really good friend who always says like, you like he, he has a running note. And in the note, it's like all like the different ways that I think about things. And he's like, you just have your own rules for everything. He's like, you're so weird. You just have your own rules for everything. And so I feel like a lot of that comes though from a couple of things. I feel like by the time I've made a decision, while I may make a decision in a moment, subconsciously, I feel like I'm constantly being exposed to I'm really big on like the network of people that I learn from online. So I feel like that constant consumption of what you are either reading or listening to or scrolling through is influencing you in one way or another, right? We think about it oftentimes as shopping and marketing, but it's really influencing your thoughts, your thinking, your ideas, and the development of those ideas. And so I feel like a lot of times the decisions that I make are 
a culmination of the things that I've been learning over a series of months or over a series of years from a very diverse group of people. So I really enjoy following people in the marketing space. I really enjoy following people in the business space. I feel like following people that were using design thinking in industry versus in education completely transformed how I came to use and understand design thinking. So learning from this like really diverse network of people, I feel like really influences what I learn and then come to believe is even possible. And then it's just a little bit of serendipity in between. I, I really believe that. I really believe that like things don't just happen by luck, but there are certain things that you can do to better position yourself. Like I talk often about how leaving Apple, one of the reasons I was able to leave in the way that I did and was because of my personal brand. Um, so while you don't create LinkedIn posts or Instagram posts or write blog posts because of something that might happen one day, by constantly investing and learning, when you do have to make a decision, you do have to have something, you have a strong foundation upon which to do it. So I feel like it's it's people ultimately that really shape the decisions that I make because of what I'm learning from them. So just continue. I think a lot. Of, I think you're right. I think a lot of people do kind of get pigeonholed into one area, and if life takes a turn for you know what, good or bad, but it takes a turn. If you don't have something else, maybe it's a plan B or just a fallback of of knowledge to rely on. It, it, that can be a challenge. I mean, that could be a really, a really stressful time for someone. Yeah, like it's been so incredible. Like I launched my new website today and just hearing people's comments, just reading people's comments, like how can we support you? How can we help you? Like, you know, oh, I'd love to talk to you about X really, really, really reminds you of just how valuable community is. It's one of the things I feel like at Apple I struggle with the most was not being able to be such an integrated part of a learning community the way I had been prior. And like just being able to experience that again today, it's just, it's such a reminder, like having a strong learning community of people you can share ideas with, of people you can learn from and get feedback from, um, is really, it's, it's the best, best, best way. I mean, it's, I feel like it's how you become a lifelong learner. <laughs> how would you describe your, your role at Apple? What was your, what did you feel like you were trying to do? And then how were you seen by the organization at Apple? Cause it seems like, um, you know, having worked a, a fair amount in, in the corporate world, it just feels like everybody's got a job to do. You're trying to get them to think about how they do their job to help them do their job better, but they just want to do their job. They don't want to take time necessary. A lot of people don't want to take the time to improve. So I, I don't know if that was a source of frustration for you, but maybe talk a little bit about your what you were trying to do uh, versus what you felt like you accomplished. Yeah. So that's going to be a little bit of a hard one because I feel like I'm still, I haven't written about that yet. So this will be like sort of my first time saying, talking this or thinking about this sort of out loud with other people. I wrote a blog post today talking about leaving the Apple and starting sort of this new chapter. And I read a book a couple years ago called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And it's a phenomenal read. But basically what he talks about is your first mountain 
is you climbing to all the things you think you're supposed to get to, the right job, the right you know, spouse, the right friends, the right, all those things that we're taught to do. Those are the things that you're working towards and you're trying to get. Like you want to buy that home. You want to do all those things that society tells you you should be doing by this age. And he says, sometimes you reach that point, you get to the top, right? And you say, is like, is this it? Like, you know, and they're just that fulfillment isn't there. And he says, that's when you start searching for other things. You start searching more for purpose and you start searching more for meaning. And he says, the beginning of that journey is your second mountain where it's not so much about what other people think you should do. It's the things that you feel you're called to do, the things you feel you can contribute in and whatnot. I'm probably not, you know, I'm that's major paraphrasing. He says it so much more articulately, but it's a really, really beautiful book. And I use his quotes as a way to frame this transition because when I started at Fairmont, it was my first time being exposed to a one-to-one environment, like, and just the trust and I was given and just the, the freedom we were given to design, um, a one-to-one iPad program and just explore how technology could be integrated was so beautiful. Like I didn't appreciate it as much looking back. I just thought it was normal. But now when I see how people integrate things, like I'm so appreciative, like I just messaged Bobby today and I was like, the trust that you placed in us was so, so, so huge. Like it was life-changing for me. And so I had worked primarily with iPads and that's really what I was doing with schools across the world. Like I was um, working with a company called EdTech Teacher and we would get called to keynote and do workshops like all over the world, um, showing people how to integrate Apple technology. And it was something that I did at USC as well, built this amazing one-to-one program, just completely, just did some such amazing work. So when it was like, oh, here's an offer to come work at Apple, you think, wow, I'm going to be able to take the things that I was doing and amplify those, right? Like now I'm really going to be digging even deeper. I'm part of this organization. And you just feel like, like I remember even on like the first day, you get this like little like card and it's like, you know, welcome. Like this is the place where you're going to do your life's best work. And so you're just so excited. You're so inspired. Plus you have that image in there, right? Like, you know, oh, this is like the best company. Like people really, really, really aspire to work here. And, you know, I don't want to undermine that in any way. Like they're definitely great places to work. But I think it just depends. Like that's where having that self-awareness about how you make decisions and the values that you hold and how those are going to align with the choices you're making become so important because you can get to something that you think is going to be amazing and have it be something completely different. So I would say the thing that I struggled with the most were the restrictions. Everything that I had been successful in doing up until that point had come through community. I wasn't the type of person who reached out to somebody and said like, oh, hi, I'm Saba. Like, I want to show you how to do X, Y, Z. I had shared a post, I had made a video, I had created some type of content that had connected me or that had sparked a conversation that then ultimately would just lead to something else. And that's always how everything had worked for me. So when that element was taken away and it was like, well, you're not allowed to share what you do online and you can't post this and you can't do that and you are in this really restrictive culture, and maybe it was generational, I don't know. But it was really, really, really hard to talk about change without telling that story day in and day out. 
without being a part of a community day in and day out where people could learn from you, you could share ideas, you could share thoughts. It just, the restrictions of not being able to fully be your whole self and bring your whole self to work was hard. It was like, you need to leave Saba over here and you need to just bring half of you over here. And it's like, well, like, I don't really know how to function without half of me. And so it's like, you do it, you do it, you do it, but you just end up running into numerous challenges, I think, that make it hard then to do sustainable work. Do you think those challenges that you ran into were just corporate restrictions that were just built into the system or was it the people that you were with? that caused that or both? One of the things that I found really fascinating, especially around a lot of the social media restrictions, was how nothing was actually a real policy. So you would get there and you would ask questions. Well, can I do this? And can I do that? Like, okay, like, is there a policy I can just read to, so that I can understand what I can and cannot do? And it doesn't exist. And so one of the things that I feel like I learned coming out of it is that a culture of secrecy is great for product. That surprise and delight, that, you know, launch. Secrecy is great for product. But I think a byproduct of a culture of secrecy is a lack of trust because you never fully know what you can and cannot do, what you can and can't say. And I think that's why that restrictiveness has to exist because – Somebody might say the wrong thing. Somebody might, you know, like have a conversation about something that like could potentially lead to something else being indicated. And so what I constantly found there was nobody, there were a lot of, there was a real fear around asking questions about doing something new or trying something new unless you were in like a certain position. So I felt like a lot of people, there was a lot of fear around asking questions. There was a lot of fear around doing things that were outside the norm. So I remember... I even try, I tried to adapt, I feel like, in the first year. I was like, okay, like, you know, maybe I'll stop doing these things and, you know, we'll figure out, see how it goes. But when I started my doctorate, I couldn't understand why I would pay so much money for a program and not share what I was doing online. Like, it just did not – like, that's what I teach is so important for us to have kids do is share with an authentic audience and whatnot. So the idea that I was going to go to school and do it all in a silo and do all this research in a silo was just – that was really, really hard for me to grapple with. So I remember I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to go to my manager. I'm not going to go to anybody. I'm just going to go straight to our legal team. And we have a division called business conduct. And I went there and I asked them like, hey, you know, I'm about to be a student. I get a lot of mixed messaging around social media. Here are the things I want to do. Can I do them? And I was so surprised by the response because they were like, um, you can do whatever you want as long as you're not talking about Apple or any of the work that you do here. And so it was just so eye-opening that you hear all these other things from your managers, from your coworkers about what is and isn't allowed, yet you go right to the source and it's so clear-cut. So I think that's sort of just like a byproduct of what happens when you have such a restrictive and silent culture is you don't really have like you just there's a lot of fear around what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot do. And it leads to a lot of miscommunication. So people kind of fill in, fill in the gaps that aren't explicitly stated then. It's like, well, I haven't heard if there's a restriction, so I, I'm going to assume that you can't do this or say this. There's probably some of that going on, it sounds like. Absolutely. And so, and I, and I think it's not just like something that's exclusive to Apple. I think it's something that you hear from a lot of people who have a job 
but are also in the podcasting space or have a side business or are experimenting with a passion. I feel like this is just a cultural shift we're going through. How do we as a society embrace this idea that just because you work at a company doesn't mean that you can't have anything else that you're doing on the side. And I think because social media is such a big part of any side business, I think there's a lot of resentment that comes about, not because, and a lot of people will just blanket it as jealousy. And what I learned is it's not really jealousy. It's that other people want to do something too. They just don't know how. And so they see you doing it. And now instead of coming to you and saying like, oh, well, I would love to learn and I would love to do this, there's resentment and there's anger. Like I found that 90% of people will lean towards resentment and you'll have that 10% that will actually come forward and be like, hey, I love what you're doing. I want to do it too. How can I, how can I get started? And so people really blanket it as jealousy. But again, that's that empathy piece, right? Like, are you really jealous or is there really something more here? Like, let's dig deeper into this. So curious on the way that you teach design thinking, it seems like people aren't really wanting to change until they're under some stressful situation where they're, my job's on the line, or maybe it's not something that big, or they want to make a big move in their career. Who do you find that's most receptive to your message on design thinking? And, and why do you think that is? So I would say, and this is just my experience, I don't feel like, actually, you know what? I'll quote somebody. So I interviewed a guest on the podcast. Her name was Brie Goff and she was amazing. She actually used to be an educator, but now she works, she does organizational change management in the, in like in the, on the corporate side now. And she shared something on the podcast. She said, people don't resist change. They resist loss. And I think it's not that people don't want to change, but I think change is so complex that the moment you even start thinking about it, the list of what you think you have to do is so long, you become so overwhelmed within minutes. And I think what design thinking does is it gives you the structure and the scaffold because change isn't something that you can just snap your fingers and just go and do. But it's also really broad and sometimes really overwhelming. And so it can be hard to know where to even begin. And I think that's where we lose most people is that they'll start an idea, they'll they'll want to do something, they'll talk about it and be like, oh, but I can't do that right now because I have all these other things I need to do. Well, all those other things are never going to go away. So design thinking says, okay, here's where you can start. Here's how you can start. And we're going to give you the framing and the, the structures and everything you need to take step one. And then we're going to give you those same framings and those same structures to take step two. And that's not because it's a cookie cutter recipe. It's giving you the structures to have the dialogue, whether it's the internal dialogue you need to have or whether it's the dialogue you need to have as a team. And that's where I think having a facilitator becomes so important. I think a lot of times, I remember my dissertation we read this one book and he said that so often when we do professional development and we do trainings, we think that there's a knowledge gap, but it's not always that there's a knowledge gap. A lot of times people know what needs to be done. There's a motivation gap or an organizational gap. Motivation is like, well, why should I do this? Yeah, I know I should do it, but well, leadership's going to change next year. And well, nobody appreciates what I do or I want to do this, but you know, I'm going to get you know 10 other people who are going to you know try to stop me or there's going to be 
some other type of like outside source force. Um, or organizationally, you know, we don't have the support of leadership. There's not a culture of trust. There's not a culture of vulnerability. There's not a culture of teamwork where I feel like I'm not going to have to do something alone, but I'm going to be supported. So I love that he digs into those other elements. And so I feel like that's what design thinking does again for you as a team. I don't think most people need consulting because they need to learn how to be better leaders or how to create creative schools. I think people need facilitation to have conversations that can be overwhelming and really be framed well to make sure we're asking the right questions, that we are being inclusive, that I can't even tell you how many like times I've sat down with like a leadership group, um, you know, from a district and we're talking about what students need, yet there are so few times when people actually bring students into the conversation to actually ask them. And when you do, that's why I, I have this other, you know, thing I sort of learned is that when you begin with empathy, what you think is challenged by what you learn. And what we think we need to do can be so much more overwhelming than what we actually need to do. Um, so I feel like design thinking, it gives you the structure and the scaffold over time to be able to navigate that change in a way that makes it feel manageable. Yeah, I really like that. It, it's almost, <clears throat> it almost seems like there's kind of an element of compartmentalization that goes into that. Because I know in my own life, there's been times where I'll think of something I want to do but then my mind just instantly jumps forward, you know, three months down the road. How am I going to do that? How am I going to process that? And I just emotionally get into kind of a, a tornado and then I just don't do it. So, I mean, that's super simplification. I don't even know if that goes directly along with what you're talking about, but. Personally, professionally, anytime we think about change, that the the list of things we feel like we need to do happens almost immediately. And that is enough to shut your entire system down from not wanting to do anything at all. And so design thinking really says like, we're just going to take step one and then we're going to test how is step one going. And that test, when you put that one thing out, gives you the motivation to keep going because you're slowly building, you're slowly learning. That's why, what is it? Like, I forget who says it. Like we underestimate what like we overestimate what we can do in like a year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And so that's, I mean, it's true. And so that idea that like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Like we don't think about that 10-year plan or that five-year plan and how change can evolve over that time. How have you noticed that in teaching design thinking, I'm thinking of uh, both corporate world and in education we have record number of people that are disengaged or, you know, they're, they're, there's an exodus of um, workers from a lot of industries. How do, how do the principles of, uh, of design thinking um, help somebody to be more engaged or more able to contribute or, or even just slow down their thinking enough to, kind of maintain that composure and think things through and, and and find ways to contribute more. Absolutely. So I feel like it would definitely vary 
based on the different age levels, right? So I'll give you an example of say like a second grader and then I'll give you an example of say like a college student or like a young adult or, you know, honestly, even an older adult, like somebody like me or whatever who's making a change. So I did my research at a school called Design 39 in San Diego, California, and they are a public K-8 school and design thinking is sort of the framework that they use, not just for teaching and learning, but also just for leadership, for like their entire culture is built around design thinking. And whereas in most, you know, second grade classrooms and whatnot, you'd have like English, math, like all the different subjects, right? They have a program called Maker 39. And in Maker 39, the students create a business. And you'd be like, what, second grade, creating a business? And this is, I think, one of the first big flaws that we have, I think, sometimes as adults in our thinking is that today's kids are just capable of so much more than we give them credit for when they have the right environment and the right exposure and the right experience to actually let their ideas come out. So what they do is, and it's not a separate silo type of experience, when they are thinking about, you know, budgeting for a business, they're teaching them the math skills or the math standards. When they are teaching the kids to write like their mission statement for their business, they're teaching, um, I don't even remember what type of writing it's called, but it's like narrative writing. There's all these other different types of writing that you, persuasive writing and whatnot. And so instead of using just a textbook, they'll pull like real mission statements from companies. And that's what the kids will break down and do their, you know, comprehension on. And then they'll write their own. So they're taking these elements of making a business, but they're also integrating all the standards, the math standards, the science standards, the, you know, English standards, whatever other ones there are. But they're able to do that because they're not working alone. And I remember it was something that each and every single one of them shared was, if I had to do this by myself, there's no way. But because they're working together, so those teachers get one hour at the beginning of every day to co-plan. And obviously, they're planning way beyond just that one hour. But because they get to touch base with each other as a team to co-design, they've broken those silos of content being taught in isolation of subject matter being taught in isolation, of teachers working in isolation, and because they're each able to bring, they call it like their unique superpower, because they're each able to bring this unique strength that they have to the table, they're able to scale so that they can create that type of experience, which most people on their own, it would just, you might be able to do it once as a little project, but definitely not something you could do on a regular basis. So that's an example of like how design thinking comes into play at a young age, because they've got to like, okay, well, how, who's going to buy your product? You want to make this business, but okay, you've got to go out and interview people. What is the need? What problem are you solving and whatnot? So they're going through the different design stages as they build our business, but they're also going through the different stages of, um, the different things they need to learn. Um, I'll share one more example from the younger grades, because this is where people feel like it's really hard to integrate. Um, I remember the very first time I learned about design thinking, I was, I was at a conference and there were two teachers from design 39 and they were first grade and they were showing how design thinking could be used in literacy. So this will be familiar for everybody because we all are read storybooks, you know, as children. And so instead of just, you know, reading the storybook to the children, they then had the children take on one character. So they could choose whichever character they wanted to dig into, and they would go through the design thinking process. So the book they used in that example was this book called Catch That Rat. It's a very typical story, right? Like the rat's running through town, grandma's trying to catch it, you know, the 
mailman's trying to catch it. Everyone's trying to catch this rat. And so one of the kids chose the rat to empathize with. And so they're like, well, you know, how does the rat feel? Like, why is everybody so scared of the rat? Uh, maybe the rat's cold. The rat's just hungry. It just wants somewhere to go, you know, because it's like it wants something. And so they created their little prototype was a um, – they had a uh, – they had like little, you know, basic materials. But he took like a paper towel roll and covered it in foil and where the rat would go in one way and come out as a human and the human go would go in and come out as a rat um, so that they would each be able to experience what it feels like to be that other character. Um, so that's another – that was probably one of my favorite examples. It's like you're dissecting sort of the story, but you're taking them through the design process. Um, again, helping them to, you know, not just rush to that immediate judgment, but to really dig in and think about why, dig through the empathy, but also create, like, what would you create that could solve of this problem that you've identified. And then I think when you look to older students, one of my favorite ways to leverage design thinking is just by designing your life. I think, you know, we've seen mental health and social emotional learning be topics that are at the forefront right now. And I think it's so rare that you really, as a young person, examine, well, what are my strengths? What am I really good at? What do I love to do? And then how do you get to explore that on a regular basis, not just in a little extracurricular class, but through the lens of different content to see how it applies in different areas to be able to really over time learn about what you like, what you dislike, what you want to do, what you don't want to do, what problems excite you, what opportunities are you curious about? And I think that's where design thinking can have a really, really, really powerful impact on you as an individual and just thinking about the design of your career, of your, of your life. I think that's actually a really fascinating point and kind of a, a segue into a question I was going to ask you. My experience is that, and I know it's the experience of many other people, that our childhood tends to sculpt us in a lot of ways that we don't let go of. Like the, those programs, if you want to call it that, that are just sort of pounded into us by parents, teachers, whoever, for, for better or worse. And then a lot of adults don't really get rid of those. They, they, I mean, they grow up, but at the same time, they, they, they carry those programs with them. And your comment about we underestimate what, what kids can do. I think part of the reason we do that is because we just have, we, we, we project these programs of what we think a kid should do or not do or what they're capable of doing onto them. And then they just, kind of follow through with that. It's just, oh, well, I was told I'm not, I shouldn't be able to do this at this age, so I'm not going to try. I think there's a lot of that going on. But earlier in the in the episode, you talked about a book by David Brooks. And I haven't read that book, but I'm going to. He says there's two mountains. And you said the first mountain is accomplishing things that you use the word should, accomplishing things that the world, society, whatever says we should do, get this career, make this amount of money, whatever that is. And then the second mountain, if I recall, was accomplishing the things that you feel like you were meant to do. Do you think that you can flip those? Is it possible to flip those and approach life as you know the first mountain instead of being what we should do or what we think society should do? Can that first mountain be what am I meant to be doing here? 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say I definitely don't have an answer to that. I I feel like one of the things, I feel like 10 years from now, if somebody asks me, I'd probably have a completely different answer because sometimes I wonder, do you have to go through those things to then, I think the challenge is sometimes you have to go through those traditional things to get the experience, the money, the, the, the degree, the whatever it is you need that unlocks that freedom. Because that's ultimately what's happening, right? Is you're able, you can make choices that are more aligned with your values and your beliefs when you have the freedom to do so. It's really that simple. And a really big part of that is having the financial freedom to do so. And I think that's another element that we don't really teach from a young age as how to build a sense of financial freedom and the value that that can really bring ultimately to your life in the decisions that you make. Um, I feel like Neither choices, and I want to make this really clear, I don't feel like one is good or bad. I don't think if you choose a more, you know, whatever path you choose, it's up to you. But I think that's where it comes down, that it should be your choice. So I think from a young age, when you have more exposure to your strengths, you have more of an understanding about what you're great at instead of all the things that you're not great at. And you have the experience of applying your strengths in different areas. You're able to pursue a path that's more aligned to what excites you. So I remember one of my favorite lines from the interviews that I did at Design 39 was one of the educators said, when we come to the table to collaborate, the first thing we ask is, what energizes you? And I think prior to the proliferation of technology, right? Like we just have an abundance of technology today that creates a tremendous opportunity to build that freedom for yourself. I think prior to that, being able to make those choices was a luxury. Like I talk about this often, how in 2007, when I graduated, while I was struggling, 2007 was also the year that startups that today are just the norm were all launching, right? So it was very different experiences for very different people. And that didn't really click for me until I read Thomas Friedman's Thank You for Being Late, because chapter two of his book is titled What the Hell Happened in 2007? And I was like, finally, somebody's going to answer this question for me because that's what I, you know, said for the better part of my beginning of my career was what the hell happened in 2007 without a lot of understanding of the different dynamics until down the line. But he talks about how in 2007, it was the launch of Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Airbnb started. Um, IBM created Watson. It was the year the iPhone launched. So while I was somebody who was struggling and being laid off because I was not prepared for that world of work, there were a ton of other people who were capitalizing on this on this you know transformation and change. So I think it's not so much about like do you start at one mountain or the other. It's just what do you have the access and exposure to that's going to allow you to have the confidence and skill set to align your interests with the things that are going to be necessary for you to accomplish and how do you do, how, do you have the freedom to do that? Because I feel like yesterday it used to be a luxury, but today it's really something that everybody should have access to. One of my favorite quotes that I use with schools to start this conversation a lot of times is one from an author called William Gibson. And he says, the future is here. It just isn't evenly distributed. 
And it's so true. Like every, there's the, the opportunities are here for people to pursue a life of passion, to pursue a life of purpose, to do whatever aligns most with their values. But not everybody gets the experiences, the skills, and is taught how to actually navigate that path because it doesn't just happen by magic. You don't just love something and then learn how to make a business out of it. Um, I think it's probably one of the biggest missing elements in school. I um, I attended a creator retreat with these two luxury travel influencers this past summer, and it was one of my biggest, biggest, biggest takeaways. Is in school, we focus a lot on passion projects and entrepreneurship and whatnot, but very, very, very rarely do we talk about how to link that to finances or how to make money and add that element in. Um, there's always this sort of like, well, just do it for fun or, okay, you know, like, oh, I don't want to make money off of that, but you should. And it's a really, really, really important skill that ultimately unlocks freedom. Well, that goes along with the programs that I think we're raised with. Like we're taught, you need to do X, Y, and Z to get whatever. And I've even felt that way um, at times with the coaching I do. I, I do life coaching, but it's more kind of on the side right now. When I first started doing it, I didn't really feel like I should charge for it because I thought, you know, who, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to, you know, why me? Who am I to help someone with something? But I, I found after working with at least a few people that uh, I can have a passion for helping people and make some money doing it at the same time. And that's not a bad thing. So, but that, that was a program for me that I don't even know where that came from. It was just, you know, from childhood, something, something inside me was programmed that way to think I shouldn't make money doing whatever it is. And I agree. I, I think freedom um, is huge, but I think a lot of people also figure, well, freedom's only for a few people. There's only a few people in the world that are ever going to have the means, you know, whatever the time to accomplish these wants and, and you know, maybe even grandiose things that they think they can give to the world. I don't think that's the case, though. Um, that may be the case, but I don't think it has to be the case, which is sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I just think that I, I feel like whatever path you per choose to pursue, like that's great. I just think every young person should have access and exposure to the right opportunities and experiences so that they can actually make those decisions for themselves. If you want to go pursue a path and be an entrepreneur and do something different, great. If you want to work a nine to five, great. I just feel like everybody should be equipped to make that decision for themselves, not just because that was a pathway that they were funneled into only then to later on in life realize like, oh, wow, I have a passion for this, or this is one of my greatest strengths, um, and never have had the opportunity to uncover that about themselves. And that could be for music, it could be for art, it could be for so many different areas that access and exposure, I think, is what every kid deserves. Dude, I got so many questions. I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, oh, man, we've been like that hour and five has just flown by. Because this is actually something I'm really passionate about. I've uh, coached volleyball for for a long time, and just getting that ignition in kids, getting them to develop a growth mindset, getting them to like I've got so many questions for you on this. Like, how do we get 
I mean, how do we light the fire in these kids? How do we get kids that, you know, don't, that there is that educational disparity? How do we level the playing field for those kids? How do we, you know, because there's so many people in the world that they, they don't have that ideal upbringing. They're not told, hey, you can do this. Um, you can be successful at this if you do X, Y, and Z. Like there is a path. And so they just take what that next thing that's presented to them. And then they're around people that, you know, have kind of not, not necessarily given up, but they don't have uh, that same aspiration to, to accomplish. And so they just kind of have a, a terminal thinking about what is possible for them. And so, I, anyway, I got tons of questions because <laughs> this this really fascinates me, and it's it's something that I want you know athletes that I work with. I want them to believe that there is a path for them to go as far as they want to go with uh, with this, or if they want to pursue education. Hey, there's the, there's a mindset, there's a framework for success. Uh, and I know I haven't asked you a, a specific question there, but maybe give us your 60-second elevator pitch for igniting passion in in people that don't really have it yet and haven't found it. How do you how do you really engage with someone and get them to believe in themselves? Yeah, that's such a such a great question. Um, one of the, I'll, I'll give you one of my favorite tools, and it's a tool called Thrively. Um, what Thrively does, you know how for adults they have those like the Gallup strengths, the Clifton strengths assessment. There's all these personality tests and whatnot you can take. Thrively worked with a neuroscientist to develop one for kids. And so what it does is it's like a, a, an assessment that you take. But what I love about Thrively is it gives you not only your strengths and your areas of talent, but it gives you the language to articulate it. Because it's one thing to be like, oh, you're smart or or you're really great at sports or you're great at volleyball. But what about you makes you great at volleyball? Like how would you explain that in depth? Like in a paragraph, how would you explain that? And so that's what this assessment does. And it gives kids the language to speak about themselves and to let other people know about the child as well. So that would be like if there was one place to start, jump on to Thrively, brilliant assessment. But you use the word mindset so much, and that's the one area I think of design thinking that we didn't really dive into, is that design thinking isn't just about, you know, these skills or these strategies, these frameworks. It's that when you're engaging in those on a regular basis, you are developing those mindsets. The biggest and my most favorite one, creative confidence. This idea that you think something, but you know you have the ability to make it happen. That simple belief that I have an idea or I have a thought and I can actually take action is such a powerful mindset to have because as we talked about earlier, that's where we get stuck. We can have an idea, but we get so overwhelmed by it, we don't believe we can take action. And so that's where the design thinking mindset of creative confidence comes in, but then it backs it up with the strategies and the skills and the frameworks and the questions. And what happens is when you do that on a regular basis, you begin to develop confidence, right? So I call creative confidence. And so I remember at Design 39, they used to just, they used to say when you change, oh my God, when you when you change your language, you change something, 
change. Oh, I don't remember, but anything. They had a huge emphasis on changing the language we use. So a lot of times we're like, oh, I'm not good at that. Or I can't do that. They used to always make you add yet. I'm not good at this yet. And that's those small little things that happen to you as a child where your language becomes a certain way, where you are developing that growth mindset. Um, Because yeah, you might not be able to do something right now, but what do I need to do to get from point A to point B? And that's developing a plan. And then when you look back in six months and you're reflecting and you see your growth, that those small things incrementally compound to build your, your confidence. I saw a meme the other day. I don't remember the exact words of the meme, but it was a really good message, I thought. And what it what it said was it took a bottle of water and it said if you were to buy this bottle of water at Costco, it would cost, let's say, 25 cents. If you were to buy that same bottle of water at the grocery store, maybe it costs a dollar. You buy that exact same bottle of water at a baseball game or something. It's five dollars. And the point of the meme was it's the same bottle of water, i.e. the same person. I mean, it's a, it's a, a people analogy here. The worth of that bottle of water just depends on who's around it. And I really liked that because I feel like a lot of people would be different. They'd have better opportunities if they just had that chance to be around people to help bring that out, which kind of brings up what you had talked about earlier and the importance of people and just having those opportunities. And we had a guest on a while back, uh, his name is Josh Penrod, that talked about something similar and how, you know, at some point in the future, he, you know, he was thinking about starting up some kind of a, a nonprofit or something like that, that would give people that might not have those networks to tap into better opportunities to do that. Um, I just think that's really valuable. Like may, putting yourself in a position where you're around the right kind of influences can make a huge difference. I mean, you've got someone that even if if someone's you know poor and maybe not living in the greatest neighborhood, maybe they can get get involved with some you know bad uh, you know gangs, you know whatever it is. They may be a really smart kid. They may be, have a ton of potential inside of them. They're just not in the right place. They're not around the right people. But if you can put them in the right place with the right people, kind of like that water bottle analogy, they become not worth 25 cents. Now they're, you know, a $7 person using that analogy. That sounds bad, but you get what I'm saying. I I think that kind of goes along a little bit with what you were talking about here. I mean, that's the entire premise for Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny, like, right? Like those programs that he runs. It's, you know, it was one of the things I was fascinated by during the pandemic was like all these, there were so many, you could attend anything basically, right? Things that you didn't normally, everybody had a free option. Everybody was inviting everybody into things that normally you had to pay for. And I remember attending a, um, it was Dean Graziosi and Tony Robbins. They were doing like a session together and reading the comments was the most fascinating part for me of the entire thing. The number of people who wanted to do something, who wanted to pursue something, but had just never been given the opportunity. I was like, this standardization that we have in education is like a multi, it must be a billion dollar industry for motivating people to do the things that they've always wanted to do, but have never had the opportunity to figure out. And that's their course and that's their plan. Like you can design your life, you can build what you want, you can, you know, create 
whatever business you want. Um, because there is going back earlier, like I said, right. That's not that people are jealous. There's this like underlying desire to want to do something more. Um, that's a human thing. Um, not just like a Gen Z thing to have purpose that, um, it's, it's an industry. It's people make money off of it. Like it's a huge industry. Um, that's self-help and whatnot of getting, of helping people figure that out because they didn't get it in school. So then you've got to figure it out yourself later in life. Well, I think we could probably go on for about five hours <laughs> talking about this stuff. Um, but we are bumping up against the time here. I just want to thank you for coming on here. I almost feel like we should do a part two or three or something at some point down the road. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I was telling Mac earlier, I was really excited because Usually when I when you talk to somebody who like knows knows you, those people ask very different questions because they already know so much. But when you talk to people who like you don't really talk to as much, like I don't know you both that well, I was like the questions are different because like, you know, it's that beginner's mind. So yeah, so thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Passion to Poison. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also tell your friends to subscribe as well.